Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. From Canada Land, this is Oppo. Hi, Canada. I'm Sandy Garasino in Vancouver. And I'm Jen Gerson in Calgary. How have you been, Sandy? Sandy's just fine. The sun is shining for once here in Vancouver. We're, for once, we're not having November weather. How about you? We are having November weather. Mm. Today, December 1st, marks the two-year anniversary of the arrest of Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou, and it seems that a couple of federal MPs have started to rattle some cages about that choice. Manitoba NDP MP Nikki Ashton and BC Greens MP Paul Manley were billed as panelists in a Zoom to free Meng Wanzhou panel last Tuesday. It was organized by three organizations, the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute, Canadian Peace Congress, and the Hamilton Coalition to Stop War. Although she was one of the headliners, Nikki Ashton was unable to make it at the last minute and she was not available to talk to us today. But this created a a lot of controversy, a lot of pushback, but it also brought to light divisions within the Canadian Chinese community and how those are playing out on the ground in Canada. Nikki Ashton may have realized that she made an oopsies. She may have, (laughs) but this is so complex. I I don't know where we're ever going to get to the end of this. Well, it's a shame she didn't show up to explain herself more fully. Anyway, I am certainly interested to find out more what is behind these calls for the release of Meng Wanzhou. To get into it, we will speak to South China Morning Post's Vancouver correspondent, Ian Young, who is always, always an excellent chat. But first, some headlines. On Monday, the federal government released its fall economic statement updating Canada's fiscal outlook. News outlets will provide more detail on some of the costs here. There are some really big numbers here, such as a federal deficit on track to exceed $381 billion in wake of the second COVID-19 wave. But I especially wanted to cheer two signature initiatives. One the efforts to modernize Canada's anti-tax avoiding rules. Uh, the the uh, update says, quote, for too long, certain individuals and businesses have been able to create increasingly complex structures in order to shift profits offshore and create artificial tax deductions. And three cheers to the federal government for making the effort to modernize this tax avoidance. You know, we all know that the tax avoidance and movement of huge assets and revenues offshore into offshore locations and using highly sophisticated and aggressive tax planning methods and instruments has cost the Canadian taxpayer, the average person. So I am really looking forward and hopeful that we get into something uh, that's got some real teeth in it and, and provides some relief to the average Canadian taxpayer that can't afford accountants. But the big deal for me in this economic update is the move towards a Canada-wide early learning and childcare system. And the government says, quote, investing in accessible, high-quality, affordable, and inclusive childcare is not only good for families, it makes 
good economic sense. And, you know, Jen and I uh, and Dr. Lindsay Tads talked about this back in April. We called it the diaper pail ready solution. And at long last, we're seeing universal childcare as a true economic driver. Um, as a nation, we've uh, invested heavily in women's education and training only to see that essential human capital sidelined as captives to childcare. This is one of the lowest cost economic stimulants that we can possibly invest in. It's incredibly labor intensive. Government support will go directly into employing a huge number of people all on its own, all the while that it unleashes economic value of workplace participation by women that society has already invested in training for higher income and taxable work. Quebec showed the way decades ago. They've been reaping massive increases in women's employment and their program has been paying for itself with induced economic growth and tax receipts. And three cheers, long overdue, but at last we're finally able to get to this point. So that's my headline for this week. I'm just thrilled to see both of these initiatives in the uh, economic update by the federal government. Noted. On my side, uh, my headline that I was watching for is that here in Alberta, there's been quite a hubbub about the leak of about 20 secret tapes that were recorded uh, within the Alberta government discussing uh, between sort of the Dina Hinshaw, our public health officer, and various public health officials and members of cabinet in terms of how they would uh, move forward with various COVID restrictions. Really, really fascinating story. It's a great scoop by the CBC Edmonton investigative team. And if you're not familiar with them, you really should become familiar with their work. I think the CBC Edmonton's investigative team is by far the best, most productive investigative team in the country, and I don't think it's close. So they came up with this great scoop. Um, it's obviously a public servant who had been surreptitiously recording these these conversations compiled them and then leaked them to journalists. Um, and I'm personally saying you have two minds about this because as a journalist, I'm like, yeehaw, <laughs> you know, like secret tapes. All right. Awesome. Like it's a scoop and a scoop's a scoop's a scoop. And, you know, our obligation as journalists is just to reveal this kind of stuff when we get it. Like that is that's our only role here. Um, and I completely understand and respect the role. And I don't think there was any journalistic ethical question about them releasing the the the, the tapes at all. Um, but a lot of people on Twitter and right across the political spectrum here, um, so left and right on Twitter in Alberta, were uh, much more leery about this particular scoop. They felt that by recording these tapes and releasing them, they really did damage between the civil service and the elected members of, of government and that you know the civil service is not going to be able to be as candid going forward. Um, and that, you know, that, that this is going to have a really damaging effect on the trust between those two roles in government. And I think that they have also have a valid point because it's expected and normal that public health officials will come to elected members of government and say, look, this is our recommendation. And it's expected and normal that the elected members of government will take that recommendation, weigh it against 15 other factors, and then ultimately make the decision. And ultimately, that's why we hold our elected officials responsible for the outcomes, because we don't fire our public health officers if things don't go well with COVID. We fire the elected officials, and that's the way it ought to run. I think that they kind of had a valid point, even as I acknowledge that as a journalist, if someone dropped those tapes in my lap, I would 100% run it. Uh, and I think that it was appropriate for them to do so. But it's 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 a it's um, a, a question that I think people ought to consider not to ponder. And I think that a lot of this is just rooted in sort of an ignorance about civics. People need to understand a little bit that, 
you know, just because we're in a crisis doesn't mean that the public health officer gets a de facto say in everything that goes on. There's still a decision-making process here, and there doesn't seem to have been anything inappropriate about the way these decisions got made, even if the elected officials didn't always agree with what the public health officials wanted to do. Joining us today to tell us more about Meng Wanzhou and the broader issues involving the Canadian Chinese community and the currents internationally involving China and Canada is Vancouver correspondent for South China Morning Post News, Ian Young. Hi, Sandy. Last week, there was a Zoom to free Meng Wanzhou with Canadians and people very concerned about these charges against Meng Wanzhou and how this is all proceeding. Before we get into this panel, let's catch listeners up. Where are we with the Huawei CFO extradition hearing? What stage is the trial at? And what position is her counsel taking with witnesses now? Ian? Yeah, we're at a really interesting phase of the Meng Wanzhou hearings, which have basically been going on for two years now. Uh, so Tuesday is the second anniversary of uh, Meng's arrest. Now, the position of Meng's lawyers is that she's the victim of a covert evidence gathering exercise. And that's what actually happened to her, they say, at Vancouver's airport when she was arrested and border officers seized her devices. They say that this evidence gathering exercise was conducted at the orchestration of the FBI. Now, the Crown lawyers who represent um, US interests in the case deny this and say that uh, this information and the phones were never actually transferred to the FBI. And there's a lot of he said, she said about that issue. So yeah, the case is at this very interesting phase where we're gathering all this witness evidence and interestingly, one of the key witnesses is this RCMP retired officer named Ben Chang, who is refusing to testify. Uh, he lives and works now in Macau as an executive at a, um, a casino there, uh, but he doesn't want to come back to testify. And that was a key moment in the, tr- in the uh, extradition hearings two weeks ago when Meng's lawyers announced this, and it kind of threw things uh, kind of into disarray because we've had a succession of police and border officers all testifying about these circumstances, and, and, and some of them have been testifying about what Ben Chang did and did not do uh, with this information with respect to the FBI, but Chang himself is not appearing. And now, so Meng Wanzhou has now been under house arrest. She was initially arrested and held in custody until her bail was set. She has now been under, essentially under house arrest for two years in Canada, and this is going to now continue for months, perhaps more than a year longer before there's a resolution. Meanwhile, we have the two Michaels, Michael Kovrick and Michael Spavor, in, uh, who have been abducted and are being held as in retaliation in China. And there was this Zoom panel to free Meng Wanzhou that was held last week. You attended that panel. How are panelists making their case to free Meng Wanzhou? Yeah, well, it was actually a really interesting sort of event. Um, I, I've I've um, uh, attended a few of these kind of things, but um, this one was was quite fruity, shall we say. There was quite, quite a lot of difference <laughs> of opinion because this was a group that was organised by a couple of, um, I think, don't think I'm talking out of school to call them fairly far left sort of groups. But Paul Manley, who's the Greens MP for riding on Vancouver Island, and Nikki Ashton, um, NDP M- MP, uh, were both slated to attend. Now, in the end, Nikki Ashton didn't attend, in fact, but she sent a speech. Paul Manley, though, um, did 
attend the meeting and he was kind of rather vigorously attacked by a lot of the attendees at this meeting because he dared to suggest sort of an equivalence between the US and, and China as imperial powers. And for his trouble, Paul, poor Paul Manley was, um, was kind of dragged over the coals for being a, an imperialist, which was um, a sort of an insult that was thrown around with with kind of gay abandon at this meeting. Sorry, it's sort of an imperialist for defending China or an imperialist for defending the US? Or like, like what do we mean by... An imperialist for daring to compare that China is, 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 is similar to the United States in behaviours. So, I mean, this was obviously a pretty pro-China crowd. I wouldn't actually categorise it as pro-China so much as anti-US, and I'm saying vehemently ah. anti-US, and vehemently anti-Western institutions. For instance... Um, Amnesty International was also dragged over the coals for being an imperialist organisation. Oh, this sounds like an intriguing This sounds fun. This sounds, this sounds like a party. As I said, it was quite fruity. Uh, and it ended up with Paul Manley, who um, I think has been subjected to some quite harsh criticism in the, in the, um, in the general interest sinosphere for talking about Meng Wanzhou and suggesting that it would be better if she was released, for him to then be attacked as um, some sort of proxy for the United States, I found quite remarkable, but there we are. So I struggle with this issue because, and I struggled a little bit with this panel because, you know, I think that there's a a pretty large landing strip between criticizing some of the American uh, approach and and intent when it comes to Meng Wanzhou, which, you know, we've done here in the show. Sandy sort of laid out some some of the dodgy stuff the Americans got up to here. You know, the further away you go from that, the closer you, you get to useful idiot for China here. And I, I, I'm trying to get a sense of on this panel where we were on that spectrum. Well, I mean, where we were on the spectrum is that Paul Manley, uh, in, in in that context, was um, the imperialist. Let's put it that way. Right. I know I can sort of hear you arching your eyebrows over there, um, but I mean it's 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 eminently reasonable. I think and and eminently reasonable person people have have made arguments, quite valid arguments, about why it might be better for Meng Wanzhou to be released, why um, this case uh, doesn't pass the smell test, all sorts of things that can be raised about this case and have been raised about this case. But on the other hand, um, we've seen this fairly, um, you know, sclerotic reaction from some people who view the story of Hmong and American imperialism as this kind of zero-sum game, you know, where uh, what is uh, necessarily, what is imperialist from uh, for, uh, of the United States uh, therefore means that China is not imperialist. If America's bad, then everybody who is uh, opposing America in any context, no matter what they do, must be there for good, right? Yeah, I mean, let, let me put it this way. Th- this meeting opened uh, with an advocate quoting the love poetry of Mao Zedong. Ooh. Mm. There was a serious idea behind this, which was that, that when Mao's wife was, um, was abducted by nationalists, uh, that was a similar supposedly kidnapping to what happened to Meng Wanzhou. And therefore, we can see in Mao's retribution on nationalists the, 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 the fire and brimstone that would be laid down upon the Americans and Canadians for daring to abduct Meng Wanzhou. It doesn't sound like this meeting is in any way representative of the current thinking of the various streams of thought within the Canadian Chinese community. No. I mean, I, I think that there are uh, streams of thought that suggest 
that she should be released and this is way too much trouble than it's worth, that yes, Canada might be acting as a lapdog of the United States. That's certainly a stream of a, a, a common stream of thought. But I think that what we saw at the Zoom meeting um, was something else. I think, as I said, it was uh, some fairly sclerotic positions. Um, it was more about how you think of America than how you think of Meng Wanzhou, than how you think of China. And I think at least one of the speakers there um, didn't even mention Meng Wanzhou by name. Mm. I think people have used her as an avatar to express their pre-existing positions on all sorts of things that often have very little to do with Meng Wanzhou. Do we have a sense of like who is behind organizing this forum and who is behind creating the perception, real or otherwise, of this grassroots campaign to release her? I don't think that this forum, the Zoom to Free Meng Wanzhou Forum, was non-genuine. I think that the people who who organized it, um, who are very well-known sort of groups and those sort of anti-war, anti-imperialist thought, those sort of people, uh, I don't think that they need to be inspired by Chinese influence to say the things they say and think the things they think. But uh, certainly those viewpoints are being exploited by people who do have a pro-China, pro-Beijing slant. And you've seen that some pro-Chinese government media picked up on this meeting as evidence that um, Canadians are, are generally opposed to Meng Wanzhou's treatment, which I don't think is true. I don't think that Generally speaking, Canadians have a great deal of sympathy or, you know, are devoting a great amount of thought to how Meng Wanzhou is being treated and instead they're more focused on on the two Michaels. So I think you have to be careful attributing some sort of puppeteer to all of these actions. Some people are quite happy to do it themselves. One question that I have is that a lot of people see that Canada's uh, failure to make moves against Huawei's bid to enter the 5G market here, that this is a sop to China. I see this as potentially a different kind of play by Canada. I'm wondering whether this is Canada's bargaining chip since Washington definitely wants Huawei to be kept out of the Canadian 5G market. I'm wondering whether Canada is withholding that from the US as a bargaining chip to get them to drop charges against Hmong. Do you have any any thoughts about these strategies? No, but what I would say is that on a whole range of issues going back quite a, quite, quite a few years, predating Hmong Wanjiao, the Trudeau government has kind of been treading water on China. We still don't really have a good sense of what the China policy is. That was despite the promises from the last election that we were going to see this China policy. And, you know, it it even goes back before that. For years, people have been trying, for instance, to get um, a modern tax treaty with China and Canada. And that's been on hold since even before Trudeau was elected. Um, That was basically drawn up and it's been shelved. So on a whole range of China issues, Canada had a policy of not having a policy. And I think those chickens are... This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities... You can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of of 
organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Coming home to roost now. Events overtake us and events in the United States and events in China are overtaking Canada's policy of, of non-policy, uh, if you know what I mean. We see this in the media. We see this playing out in reporting suggestions that, oh, Canada is toadying to Chinese interests. And there's this concept of sort of shadowy Chinese influence. By Chinese, I mean Beijing. Can you expand a little bit on those interest groups and how this is, how this is manifesting itself in Canada? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't think it's any secret that uh, the United Front Work Department is active in Canada. You know, and by that, I mean China's grassroots outreach program into uh, Canadian society. Um, And you see a vast range of um, pro-Beijing organisations that position themselves as representatives of the greater Chinese-Canadian community. We see it also manifested just down the road in Surrey here, for instance, where an anti-Beijing activist and journalist, Gao Bingchen, has basically been under siege in his own home from protesters from within a different faction of supposedly anti-Beijing fought. And these protesters, who have been outside his house and beat up a friend of his in a very violent fashion, are associated with Steve Bannon and Miles Guo. What? Unpack this for me. Okay, a bunch of Chinese-Canadian anti-Beijing protesters beat up a Canadian Chinese journalist's friend. Yes, there is this big divide within the Chinese community here between people who support Donald Trump because he is anti-China and other people who are also anti-Beijing, I should say, but are dismissive of Donald Trump. And that's what we're seeing here. And, you know, you see all sorts of conspiracy theories and all sorts of wild accusations about China and the coronavirus, for instance, uh, that are being propagated by groups associated with Steve Bannon slash Miles Gore's activism. You know, this guy's a billionaire. I'm not necessarily suggesting he's funding these protesters outside Gao Bing Chen's house, but they are live streaming to Miles Guo's TV station. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is it? It's my understanding that Miles Guo that this was the this is the individual on whose boat Steve Bannon was arrested. Do I have that correct? Correct. Miles Guo is uh, this sort of exiled Chinese billionaire who was wanted by the Chinese government. He's accused of all sorts of things, um, uh, but he's been funding these um, anti-communist party groups. Uh, Now, interestingly, um, uh, the people who uh, are targeted by him now suggest um, that that he's actually trying to win favour with the Communist Party again. And that's why he's targeting um, different factions within the oppositional um, groups within the diaspora. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but I mean, certainly his his group is still quite vehemently anti-Beijing from what I can see. What? To clarify, it sounds like there are... 
two anti-CCP factions, uh, both opposed to Beijing and the government of China and the Chinese Communist Party, one side of which is now engaging in a campaign of intimidation against the other. Can you clarify about that, please? Yeah, well, Gao Chen is an anti-CCP guy and, and um, you know, Miles Guo's group are also anti-CCP, on the face of it at least. The way they differ, though, is that, for instance, Miles um, Guo's group has been peddling a lot of conspiracy theories about the origins of COVID-19. And this is the Bannon Connected person. Correct. They've been spreading this stuff about China having created the virus in a lab and deliberately spreading it and things like that. And, um, you know, Gao Chen. As, who operates mostly on Chinese language YouTube has been very dismissive of this idea, and not unreasonably, because I mean this is not. A, I mean his his position is quite a, is a science one backed by by the consensus of science, and for his trouble for doing that, he's been widely lambasted by um, the Miles Guo group as some sort of proxy for the Chinese government. He opposes us, therefore he is, he must be communist, which I think is ridiculous considering for anyone that has followed uh, Gao Bing Chen's career over the past couple of decades. Is the attempt here to silence anybody who is not adopting this, uh, this uh, Chinese version of the QAnon message? Yes. I think that um, what you're seeing is an attempt to monopolise this space in the Chinese community. There is an attempt to monopolise opposition to the Communist Party in the West uh, with these kind of crackpot theories, some of them. So is like QAnon huge in this in this group? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, wow. Election conspiracies have overtaken a lot of Chinese pro-democracy groups here in Canada. Huh. We see, for instance, many people who support the Hong Kong protest movement have been won over by Trumpism and have been won over to the idea that it's only Donald Trump that can save the Hong Kong people. That's not a tiny sliver of the protest group now. But I should say that there's also a large oppositional segment within the Hong Kong protest movement and within you know Chinese-Canadian communities in general who are very dismissive of, of Trump and Trumpism and, um, you know, in the same way that in the mainstream society we see those divides as well. So it's a very interesting sort of a dynamic that's unfolding. And that's why people, I think, have a hard time understanding that there can be two groups within the Chinese-Canadian community who are both equally rejecting of the Chinese Communist Party but who hate each other. Does this dovetail at all with the Meng Wanzhou question? Well, I mean... Gaobing Chen and his friend Louis Huang, who was actually the guy who was beaten up, I mean, they've been very active protesting outside Meng Wanzhou's um, extradition hearings. They've been very active in calling for the two Michaels to be freed. At the same time, we've had pro-Beijing uh, people protesting outside the court sometimes um, in opposition to them. As for the dynamic involving Miles Guo and, and, um, and Steve Bannon's uh, group, uh, I haven't actually seen that expressed outside the court. But, um, you know, they have thoughts, you know, that, that generally align to the idea that Meng Wanzhou, um, you know, is a villain and that she needs to be dealt with harshly. How much is this being covered in the Chinese language media and how much is it being unpacked uh, there or anywhere in, in Canadian media? Um, I think that some people have done a pretty good job on this. I think that the star uh, has done a very good job on it. Um, because of the Meng Wanzhou hearings, I haven't been able to write about it because I've been dealing with that for the past two weeks solid. Uh, but 
uh, the Chinese language media has been very leery of writing about this incident because the people outside Gao Bingchen's house are not to be messed with. Um, the video of of Louis Huang, you know, getting the daylight smacked out of him and kicked on the ground and things like that are, are chilling to me uh, because we're sort of gawping at this goggle-eyed as sort of this lurid um, example of Chinese community weirdness. But at the same time, what you're seeing here is political violence and political intimidation unfolding in real time on Canadian soil with the highest of stakes. And I do worry that because it is so strange, it could tend to be trivialised, and it's not at all trivial. It's a very serious matter. Political violence in Canada is unusual. This is political violence that we've seen. At the end of the day, you know, this involves forces far greater than those handful of people at the cul-de-sac. It involves forces far greater than, you know, poor old Gao Bing Chen. And I don't think that the RCMP in Surrey is necessarily making that calculation. And from someone who has been watching this unfold for a couple of months, it was eminently unsurprising that it has resulted in serious violence. And I do wonder, what next? What exactly is it going to take for the Surrey RCMP to look at this and to conclude that violence isn't something that is a remote possibility and that something even worse might happen. Who knows? You know, this has been going on for months. This is a very determined group that is very determined in their targeting of Gao Bing Chen. And not only Gao Bing Chen, but as you're indicating, and I think that you have had some pushback uh, from some of your statements on Twitter, there is certainly uh, social media activity that is centered around um, intimidating and silencing anybody who takes this on. Would you not agree? As someone who has been uh, extensively the victim of that kind of behaviour, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, and that's something that's picked up in the past couple of months for some reason, by which I mean, you know, social media targeting of me and others who talk about these issues, who talk about um, who talk about China and Canada and Meng Wanzhou and whatever. It's weird. It's creepy. Um, you know, I had my photo posted um, by someone accusing me of being a rapist, and that gets distributed around these Chinese media group, the Chinese social media groups. You know, I look, you know, accused of being a pedophile, um, accused of all sorts of weird, horrible things, and that's, I think, is part of a strategy. You know, I don't think these are just random trolls. I think this is something that's has been agreed upon that there's going to be this targeting that's going to happen. And that's something that's happened in the past couple of months, for sure. One of the things that I think really emerges out of this and emerges out of uh, Joanna Chu's coverage mm -hmm. in Toronto Star is how much more Canadians need to understand the global world that we're living in and the pressures that many Canadians in different communities are facing that, that are just not coming to light. So Ian, thank you so much for shedding light on all of this for us. Thank you, Sandy. And thank you, Jen. Thank you, Ian. So Sandy, I admit, I love talking to Ian Young. Whenever we have him on the show, it is fantastic. What caught your attention in that interview? Well, there was something, and I, I'll completely confess to my own ignorance here, is that I often don't know really what's going on with the, the Canadian-Chinese diaspora and, and, and the internal politics therein. And so some of the stuff that he was telling me about the internal dynamics were just 
fascinating to me. And I also sort of started to break myself a little bit silently when he was talking. Like, I should know this. We should understand this. I mean, I think we've reached a point where we can no longer treat the Canadian Chinese community as being kind of like a a small or a minority community, their politics are fundamentally and intimately intertwined with Canadian politics. And I think we need to start treating them as such. We're almost at a kindergarten level of understanding where if you take one position, then you're either pro-Beijing or you're anti-Beijing and this defines you. And there's so much more to this. I remember being trained back in journalism school that, you know, when they give you the the matrix by which you decide whether or not something is newsworthy and, and, and decide, you know, whether or not it's worth devoting resources to, one of the major cross sections is locality. You know, people tend to care more about stuff that they feel is local to them. And it's really easy to not care about what's going on in a place like China, if you're sitting in, you know, Calgary or Edmonton or Vancouver or Toronto. And I think that what that interview really brought home for me is the idea that like locality is a really shifting concept in 2020. You know, like what what's happening in China, the internal politics of China, the internal politics of, of, of major um, powers around the world now really does hit home. It, it It is a local story now in a way that I don't think it would have felt like a local story 10, 15 years ago. And getting back to the Meng Wanzhou case, one of the things that I think was interesting about how that panel was received and, and the debate about that panel was how it kind of descended into, well, you're an American imperialist or you're a Chinese imperialist or you're, you're being influenced by one side or the other and you're parroting points of view when what we need is a clear-eyed Canadian perspective on exactly what has taken place. I mean, my position has been very clear for a long time. I have no truck with China. I carry no water for China and absolutely none for Huawei, as you know, Jen. But this case has taken on a life of its own and it really needs uh, control by Canadian interests advancing our own independent Uh, perspective on this. This week's mailbag question comes from Nick Wheeler-Hughes, who is asking on Twitter, at Oppocast, with a Biden presidency and better relations with the U.S., could Trudeau see an opportunity to call a snap election and regain his majority? Jen, what do you think? Uh, I think the possibility of a snap election is going to be very disconnected from what is happening in the United States. To be honest, I I don't think that the Biden presidency is going to be much of a factor one way or the other. I mean, if anything, the continued terror show that is the Donald Trump um, presidency Mm. gave the liberals quite a lot of political cover for their own nonsense and wrangling. So, like, I don't necessarily think that the Biden presidency is a net gain or a net positive for the Trudeau government, politically speaking, although it's certainly a net gain for Canada. But no, is there is there going to be a snap election? I mean, Matthew Green made this argument, and I think he actually made a pretty smart argument that there probably would be a snap election in spring simply because we're probably going to run out of money. And you want to get that majority locked in before people start to feel the consequences of that. Do you see a majority as a likely outcome of a snap election? I think that they've got a pretty strong shot at a majority, to be honest with mm-hmm. you. In spring. I I don't think uh, O'Toole's established himself well enough just yet. I think the conservatives are still a bit really, you know, if we've seen what happened in BC with John Horgan and and, and the sort of decision to call that election uh, in the midst of the pandemic in BC, and I think also where was the other province that did that? 
New Brunswick, sorry, New Brunswick. I mean, it does seem to be that the electorate is rewarding snap elections in the midst of the pandemic. So there, there could be an argument there for them. Yeah, it's interesting. Having gone to the polls in British Columbia um, during the pandemic, I thought it was extremely well run. So the argument that a pandemic is a um, is a problem, I I don't know that I buy that necessarily. It was extremely. It was very very well done. Um, I'm I've been surprised by uh, Aaron O'Toole's apparent weakness when he was first elected and given his his uh, kind of all-encompassing, all-embracing acceptance speech when he won the leadership, I really thought, oh my goodness, this is a guy who's going to be a problem for Trudeau. And that has not materialized. So it's interesting. I, I am tending to think that an earlier election might be more of a prospect than I would have thought um, say a few months ago, but I but I think I agree with you, Jen, that I don't see it necessarily connected to a Biden presidency. Yeah, and I would also, if the devil's advocate to this is just like traditionally speaking, the electorate does not take kindly to snap elections, particularly when those snap elections are perceived to be opportunistic. So I think that Trudeau would need a really good reason for why now, and I think that that would be a hard thing for them to come up with. And, uh, but I think, wouldn't you agree that an awful lot depends on the rollout of the vaccines? If that looks like a disaster, disaster, yeah, that might might give a lot of people some pause. And everything that I've read about how you actually mount a massive um, full population vaccination program with a brand new vaccine system, where everybody's got to be vaccinated twice within about a month long period, this is gonna be this is. This ha- this is going to be a challenge. Also, at the same time, like the vaccine at least heralds that there's an end in sight to the crisis. That's true. And one of the, the downsides that the, that the liberals are going to face is that after the crisis is over, there's a giant, and then what? And then how do we pick up our economy off the floor? Mm. Then then how do we sort of rebuild social cohesion? How do we, how do we move on from here? And I kind of get the sense that a lot of leaders haven't had that conversation with themselves just yet. So I don't know. I, I think that it's actually going to be a, a more difficult question than people realize. And as much as O'Toole's and the, I think that the conservatives are kind of floundering in terms of how to manage this crisis generally. At the same time, I don't think that the liberals have filled me with a lot more confidence either. So, you know, if we start to see Justin Trudeau come forward with a rebuild back better, great reset plan that looks to have, you know, its head half in the clouds. I I don't think that's going to go over well with where people actually are right now. If you have a question you'd like to ask us, you can write us at oppo at canadalandshow.com or tweet us at oppocast. That's it for oppo this week. We'll be back again in two weeks. No, wait, we won't be back again in two weeks, Sandy, because we're going on vacation. It's going to be Christmas. Once again, the ways to get in touch are at oppo at canadalandshow.com or on Twitter at oppocast. This episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production from Kevin Sexton. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. And our theme music is by Nathan Burley. <laughs>